have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God, this morning, we keep our eyes set on you. At the end of a year where we can feel weary, we can feel faint, we can feel that pain and that ache that things aren't right. God, we set our eyes on you, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who holds all things together, the one whose understanding is unsearchable. And we just declare it, you are the God who sees, you are the God who hears. You are the one who waits. You are the one who acts. You are the true and living God with a real plan who's working out real purposes to redeem and transform each one of us and to establish your son on his throne, ruling over the whole earth from Jerusalem. So God, we take our refuge in you this morning. We come under the shadow of your wing. We declare that you are our home. You are our exceedingly great reward. We look to no other to provide all that we need. We look to no other as our source and supply. We set our gaze on you this morning. love you God we're so grateful to be your children we're so grateful to be your family we're so thankful this morning amen amen well good morning welcome it's great to see you all so this morning we are looking at the cross and I'm going to be reading from first Corinthians 1. So if you want to open your uh, Bible and kind of track along, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through to 2. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolishness to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. 
And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chooses things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Wayne. Good morning, everybody. I invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask you for that reality of opening the eyes of our hearts and filling them with light to see more of the majesty of God, the wisdom of God, to be a people captivated by God and living for his glory as a response to your grace. Your grace, O God, that wonderful gift through which we come into your presence with the confidence knowing that we will receive mercy in our time of need because you are good and gracious and have made a way for that to happen through the death of yourself that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself on the cross. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes and let us see Jesus more clearly this morning. I pray for his name's sake. Amen. Well, one of the interesting questions that um, you may or may not have ever thought about is, why is the cross the symbol of Christianity? How did, how did something that symbolizes torture and death, how did that come to be the thing that people wear to adorn their body in their ears, around their necks? They hang it in church buildings. Some people hang it in their home. How did that thing that was an instrument of torture and death become so prominently displayed as the defining symbol of Christianity? I think the answer is in the text that we've had read to us today. And Paul, when he was writing to the disciples of Jesus living in Corinth, in the, in the second, what we call the second chapter of his letter, we always need to remember that when we refer to chapters and verses in the Bible, that Paul did not write the chapters and the verses. Paul wrote a letter. All the books are one continuous thing. Chapters were inserted partway through history by someone at an appointed time. They just thought it would be a good idea. It would be easier to find things. Uh, and then someone else a, couple, a bit later on thought, oh, it would be good if we actually broke it up into verses so you find chapters and verses. But Paul didn't write like that. None of the Bible is written like that. So in what we call the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds them that when I came to you, to the cosmopolitan Corinthian city, so famous in the Greek-Roman world of that time, Paul says, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you about God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. It's a stunning statement. He says, the New American Standard Bible translated, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul wanted everyone to, this was his message, Christ and him crucified. And I want to encourage you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, to make this your defining message. When you speak to people, if you're not yet, a committed disciple of Jesus, I want to invite you 
to look at Jesus through this lens and not through any other lens. Several weeks ago, the phrase, nothing but Christ and him crucified, began, it began to rumble over and over in my spirit. And um, I've lived long enough to realize that when something like that's going on, God's trying to get my attention. Perhaps you have something similar. You know, a particular scripture, but just begin, you, just, you wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it. It pops into your brain at, different, at random times during the day when you're not thinking about anything. And you realize, Lord, you're trying to say something to me. So you, you begin to pay real attention to that. And that's what happens with me. And I realized that God was wanting me to search this out. And so I went back into this passage in Corinthians and began to look at it. And I concluded that it was not just for me, but it was for all of us. And it was my plan to bring this message last Sunday. But Depot did such a brilliant job. I didn't need to. So it's coming this week, which is really good because it's been a very challenging week. Anyway, that's another issue for another day. But this reality, this is what we're about. The people of God around the world, this is what we're about. It's about Christ and him crucified. This reality is something we must never forget. It's a historical reality we need to remind ourselves of, we need to remind our children of, and we need to remind our society of this fact. I don't know if anyone here has a a history degree. I know some of you are students of history, some of you have done it in high school, perhaps you've done it in university. But anyone who's a student of history, if you look about all through all the length and breadth of history, as far back as we can go, and you to, if you had to pick the greatest event, the pivotal event in human history, I would say to you, as a historian, that Christ and his crucifixion is the greatest event in history. It eclipses everything else. Nothing in the past is more important than Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and his crucifixion towers over every person and event of history. Now, that may challenge you to think about it like that, and that's good, I hope it is, to realise that there, there is nothing in history past that is greater or more significant for the whole of the human race than Christ crucified Christ crucified cast a shadow over the ancient global empires of Persia Babylon Greece Rome it cast a shadow over the current uh, you know global entities of Russia China the USA the European Union it cast a shadow over the multi billionaires that are soon becoming trillionaires the the global conglomerates that control so much of commerce and trade around the world the shadow of christ crucified is over all of them and that is the defining thing that they are all going to be measured against none of us know what will happen in the future none of us know you woke up this morning but when you went to bed last night, you assumed you were going to wake up this morning. You did not know you were going to wake up this morning. Would that be a fair enough statement? You assumed you did because you got up the morning before. You assumed life was going to keep going on, but there's no guarantees. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But what we know for 100% certain is this. And we sang it in Psalm 2. That the one thing in the future that will be greater and more glorious than the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is his glorious return as the King of Kings to sit on God's hill, God's King on God's hill, ruling God's world, God's way. That is going to be the only thing that's coming in the future that's greater than the cross of Christ and him crucified is when Jesus sits and all the world sees him as the king of kings and the lord of lords and every knee bows and every tongue confesses him as lord and on that day the question will be that will you will your tongue confess him as lord with joy and gratitude and amaze and amazement or will it confess begrudgingly that yes the one you despised and scoffed is actually the Lord of all.
When we look throughout the world, if you look at every other religion, you won't find anything like Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing like it exists in any other religion. It doesn't, nothing like Christ and him crucified exists in any schools of philosophy. Pick any school of philosophy, you won't find anything like Christ and him crucified. Pick any school of psychology, you won't find anything like Christ and him crucified as the answer to the individual problems that are facing that person, you, me, or that's facing the nation or the nations. You won't find an answer like Christ and him crucified. And the great tragedy is that some parts and some streams They have the name Christian, there are denominations in the Western Christian church that have forgotten and are neglecting Christ crucified. They're they're a bit embarrassed about it and about his claims. And others in the church have turned Jesus into some kind of self-help guru who exists to make your life better. He wants you to live your best life. Now I can say that absolutely Jesus wants you to live your best life, but your best life is found in him, not in pursuing your heart, what's on your heart. It's like, what's on your heart, Jesus? That's where I'll live my best life. If you're here this morning and you're looking for meaning and you're wondering how how you can live a great life, the answer from Scripture and the answer from multitudes of people is... You'll find it in Jesus. Find out what's on Jesus' heart and you'll live your best life. And one of the worst things that's happened more recently is that, is that the way that our culture treats Jesus, they, we, they claim him as a poster boy for acceptance and inclusivity. He's the poster boy. And they forget he's the rejected, crucified Messiah. And so, just in summary about all that, Christ crucified is rejected by every other religion and philosophy. It's neglected by some in the church and it's degraded by popular culture. But I also want to sound a warning to us, New Life Church, this morning. There's a danger that we have to guard against, and it's this. It's the danger of knowing Christian words or Bible phrases about the cross of Christ and songs about the cross of Christ, but our lives are actually empty of its wisdom and power we agree with the concept but we run away from the offense because in some situations it can be embarrassing or even career ending to say that the crucified Christ is the only way to God and in case we might be thinking that this is something new look again at Paul's words you've got the text in your hand out there He talks about it. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Foolish. That means they think it's utter rubbish. It's nonsense. Verse 22. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. Prove yourself. You should hear echoes of Luke chapter 4 in there. And Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. If you really are the son of God, prove it. And so much of the church is busy trying to prove itself to a world that's dying, but we're proving it in the wrong way. We just need to point people to Christ. We don't need to try to be relevant. We will never be relevant. We will never be accepted by those who are perishing. This is the message that Paul wants us to connect with and I want us to connect with. In verse 23, so he says, So when we preach that Christ was crucified... The Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. If you look in the text, it talks about the fact that there are, where does this lead? This is verse 20. Where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? Now in that list, like what they were the, um, what's the term? They were the top of the tree. They were the rock stars of the day. The philosophers the scholars and the debaters. They were the rock stars in the Greco-Roman world. They were the influencers. And you see, this is what Paul is contrasting and what we have to get hold of. And Paul is confronting 
them in Corinth when he writes and he's confronting us today. So where does this leave the influencers? Where does it leave the billionaires? Where does it leave the politicians? Where does it, it leaves them with nothing if they don't have Christ. And they'll say it's foolish and nonsense. I used to think strange thoughts. I used to think how good it would be if a big name rock star, this is back in the 80s before some of you were born. I thought, wouldn't it be great? High profile athlete gives their life to Christ. People would flock to it like that would be just powerful. Rock star gives their life to Christ. That would be powerful. You know, some other person doesn't make a difference to the world. Makes not a scrap of difference because it's devoid of the cross. If people follow Christ because of a high-profile athlete or an influencer or someone with a lot of money, then if someone with more money or influence comes along, they'll very quickly switch their allegiance to that one. It's this that anchors us. It's the crucified man, and Paul. this is why Paul says as well, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the reality, I've died to myself. I now, he now lives in me. I'm, I'm, and we all know ourselves on the inside. We, are, we all know. We're weak, we're wretched, all those, all those things. And so we stand in awe of his grace. So Paul is deliberately preaching the truth of Christ crucified, knowing that it will offend the minds of both Jews and the non-Jews or the Greeks. And, and uh, yes, it's the exact opposite of the strategy that many of the churches are trying to implore today to make Jesus acceptable or relevant to people. The only thing that will save people is the message of Christ and him crucified and of bringing themselves at the foot of the cross. I said before, it's the greatest event in history and people will never understand history if they don't read the Bible. That's a huge statement, isn't it? Imagine going to the University of UWA and, and signed into the history faculty. Do you read the Bible? And if they say no, say, well, you'll never understand history if you don't read the Bible. You'd be laughed out of the place. You? you know, they'd laugh me out, wouldn't they? <laughs> you silly Christian. But it's true because the Bible tells us how the world got started. It tells us what's gone wrong and it tells us what God's done to fix it and it tells us where it's all going to end. It's the only thing that does. You, you work in places and with people that if you talk about the, there's a problem, the world's sick, everyone agrees with you, don't they? Like, does anyone debate that in your workplace? Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with the world. Well, it's amazing. It's perfect. Stop saying bad things about it. No, they all agree. But the question is, so how did it get this way and what can be done about it or what has been done about it? And our answer as followers of Jesus is God's done something. God came down. God didn't say, you get up here with me. God came down. God came to us. He revealed himself to us. So the cross, so people won't understand history if they don't read the Bible and we'll never understand the Bible if we don't realize that the cross of Christ is the epicenter of the Bible. The focal point which everything leads to it and then leads away from it. It's defining transition point. And the reason for this is because, and please do not miss this everybody, if you forget everything else to say today, please don't, don't miss this. The cross is the heart of God. People say, where's God when I'm suffering? There, broken, bleeding, bloodied on a cross. Where, is, where were you when he was suffering? Is the question. Not where is God when I'm suffering, but where were you, where were you when he was suffering? That's a better question. So we'll never understand the heart of God if we, if we don't understand the cross, if we don't bring ourselves to the cross and to gaze at the cross and to contemplate Christ crucified and what that means for me as an individual, for us as a nation and for the world. 
Because it's, the cross is the way that God has chosen to make himself known to people everywhere. Who would think that the major problems of the world and the issues in our individual lives are going to find their ultimate salvation in the execution of an innocent Jewish carpenter in the year 33 CE? Who's going to, who's going to think that? Outside of, the, outside of the people who read the scriptures and know Christ. But this is Paul's message. So everywhere he went, he preached Christ and him crucified. When he was in Jerusalem, this, is what, this was his message. You can read his letters and you can see all this. When he went to Corinth, in Ephesus, in Rome, these great cities of the day, he preached Christ and him crucified. When he went into a Jewish synagogue, he preached Christ. He was speaking, and, when we, and of course, I need to clarify this to say, make sure you understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Christ is, a, is just simply the Greek, Greekanized word. I just made that word up. Of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Christ, Messiah. So, when, so Jews are expecting a Messiah. Paul goes into the synagogue. He announces to them, the Messiah has come. You crucified him. You nailed him to a cross. No wonder they're offended. He goes into, he goes into the Greek culture of the day, to the philosophical places, to the temples, to the marketplaces of the Greek world. And he says, the answer you're looking for in all of your philosophy, in all of your debates is Christ and him crucified. Jesus is the answer. The crucified man, the Jewish Messiah, he's the saviour of the whole world. He's who you need. He's who needs to be at the centre of your philosophy. He needs to be the centre of your scholarly, intellectual pursuits and the centre of your debates. They need to be about Christ and him crucified. A lot of the times in the world today, as Christians, we're told that we need to go and tell people that Jesus loves them or that God loves them. How many of you have thought that, done that, tried that? God loves you. Sometimes see it on, on signboards and that ever, around the place. Even see it on bumper stickers, window stickers, all that. Jesus loves you. So what? Who's Jesus? For most Australians, he's a swear word. Jesus', Jesus name gets a lot of mention on our television screens and in our movies. But as a swear word. So to say Jesus loves me is like it's, it's got no content. So what I want to suggest is that that's not where Paul started. Paul didn't walk into the synagogues or the Greek marketplace and say Jesus loves you because they would have the same response as most Aussies today. It's like, well, thanks. So what? Who's Jesus? He loves me. Oh, that's nice. I like being loved. So someone loves me. Good. It's got no content. The first thing that people need to know, the Aussies need to know, and not just Aussies, but everyone around the world, that Jesus is God. That's the first thing they need to know. Hang on, when we talk about Jesus, we're saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the living God, the eternal God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's a real flesh and blood man who was born into the world and he lived and he suffered and he died and was resurrected. And from that historic foundation, then we've got something to springboard to. But until they acknowledge that Jesus actually came in the flesh, God came in the flesh, this is 1 John. Until someone one that's a letter by the way, in case you're not familiar with 1 John. It's a letter in the New Testament. Until we know that God became a human, he became flesh and blood and dwelt amongst us. We know what he taught, what his message was. Not the, not the poster boy inclusivity message. Jesus' message was, I am the Lord, bow down and worship me. Then you get included. Everyone's invited to, he invites everybody, come to me, Jesus said. This is the message. Come to Jesus, bow and worship him. So they need to know him. And this is why Paul preached Christ and him crucified. Because Paul wanted people to stop trusting in anything else. He wanted some of the things I've, I've heard today. In fact, I did something I've never done before a couple of days ago. I commented on someone's Twitter feed. It was a big day. 
So a lot of thought went into that, whether I risk it or not. Because a Christian author was talking about their new book coming out and they put in brackets, cross my fingers. And I was just like, you've got to be joking. You've got to be joking. So I suggested that he think of a better phrase. He either trusts in God, God's timing, God's control, or not. But how many of you have crossed your fingers this week, last week? Touched wood? Anyone touched wood? These things, they, we, they just be, they're part of our culture. We're talking about things like yin and yang and all this other stuff that's around the place. And we don't even know that we have drifted away because we've just, these phrases, our culture is saturating itself in anti-Christ, right? Not so much a hatred of Christ, but alternatives to Christ, which all these things are. So, anyway, go into a news agent, you get to rub the tummy of those cats that sit on the counter. Not the ones with fur, the ones with the waving arm. I don't. Anyway, I digress. This reality we are preaching is trust in Christ and Christ alone, not just for forgiveness of sins, for salvation and eternal life, but we are trusting in Christ in every aspect of our lives. He is enough. And this is why Paul preached it, and we need to keep preaching it to I need to keep preaching it to you, you need to keep preaching it to yourself, you need to keep preaching it to your children and your grandchildren. Christ and him crucified. This is the power and the wisdom of God. This is what Paul says in verse 24. He is the power and the wisdom of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about how absurd that statement is. To, get, to talk about a man being executed as a common criminal and people are saying he's done nothing wrong, it is a complete mock-up, it is a complete injustice, but you, you go, well, and Paul says, that right there is the power of God. You're going, what? That's the power of Rome. That's the power of a corrupt priesthood that crucified him. You're saying that's the power of God? That's the wisdom of God? But this is God, this is what God has done, right? He's done this. And if you read through these, this text that we're looking at this morning, you see it over and over again because it's a confrontation, you see. But what that gives us all is hope, you see? And do you know why? The gospel is so well received often amongst people who would be called lacking in education is because they get it and they're grateful. They're not trying to work it out. They're not trying to resolve all their intellectual arguments. Now, Christianity has a lot of intellectual credos, so don't, don't, ever, don't think I'm you know, dishing that, but I'm just saying... You can't work it out intellectually. That's what Paul is saying about the philosophers and the scholars and the debaters of his day. You cannot work it out that that is the power and the wisdom of God. It doesn't make sense intellectually at that level. You have to go, there's a mystery here that I cannot understand and say, God, reveal it to me. Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified so that your faith would not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. You see, if it rests on human wisdom, we come back to the thing, if it rests on a good argument, then if someone comes along with a better argument that undermines that argument, well, then I've got nothing to rest on. But if it doesn't rest on an argument, it rests on the revelation that that was God himself suffering on my behalf for my sins to make me right with himself. You see, it's wisdom and power. God chose the, the things the world considers foolish. This is verses 27 to 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, in order to shame those who think they are wise, the arrogant intellectuals. 
of which some of us are still. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And so here we stand at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we see the power of human rebellion conquered by the weakness of God. It's a stunning claim. The power of human rebellion is conquered by the weakness of God. So the mystery of that is phenomenal. The blackness of the human heart is revealed. The truth about our rebellion against God, our alienation from God and one another as well, is all revealed, it's all laid bare. And we realise God, it took your death to deal with my sin, rebellion, and my brokenness. And it's then that we stand in awe and worship. And we think that this death was enough, not just for my sin. I mean, I'd be very grateful, personally, if Jesus' death was enough for my sin. But tough luck to the rest of you. You missed out. It wasn't enough. It was only one. I got it. Hey, (laughs) you know, happy days for me. But no, the message of the cross is it's enough for the world, which I think the population just popped over 8 billion, didn't we? Didn't we just recently pop over 8 billion? It's enough to save 8 billion people that are living now, plus all the ones that are living in the past, plus the ones that are coming before Jesus returns. It's enough. The glory and the mystery is enough of this. Now, oh, the world is continuing to uh, lift up Antichrist, and by Antichrist I mean alternatives to Christ. And one of the prominent ones that's, that's uh, gained great, um, great hold in our culture is the theory of evolution. And some of you are infected with this, even, even though you actually don't, don't subscribe to it necessarily intellectually, but it, it, we swim in this. It permeates our culture. And so again, we have to keep filtering stuff out. And I find that if the, so the more you understand God, the more, the, more, the more you invest in reading the scriptures and knowing the heart of God and the character of God and knowing what God has said, the more able you are to easily filter this material out. But, That theory of evolution tells you that your existence is the product of chance and time. That's what the theory of evolution tells you, doesn't it? Live long enough and you'll grow two extra arms and three extra heads. You'll evolve to be something greater than you are right now. Okay? You're simply a collection of molecules with no ultimate destiny or purpose. You're not created. You don't have a destiny or purpose. And our world is racked with people who are living without purpose. But some in the church are living like that as well because this has infected their thinking. It's like, no, no, you're not an accident. You're a creation by God who loves you. And this is, what we, this is why we preach Christ and Him crucified because we keep having to speak to our culture and say, no, you aren't. All of your friends at school and university, they need to know they're not just an accident of time and molecular energy. They're created with dignity and purpose, priceless value, that God said, I will come and die to save you and redeem you. That's why I say the crucified Christ towers over the theory of evolution. And Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That was in his second letter to the Corinthians in the fifth chapter in the 19th verse. Christ made us right with God. Back in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, you can see that text on your page. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from our sin. 
We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to disobeying God. We were slaves to living our own way. We were slave, enslaved to that, which, and the product of that is death. But now we've come into Christ. We have been freed from that. Christ has made us right with God. Christ has made us pure. Christ has made us holy. Christ has freed us from sin. When I was a teenager last year, oh good, some of you are still awake. When I was a teenager, I went to a training session on how to introduce someone to Jesus. Some of you might have gone to similar training sessions like this. You might have put your hand up. And we were taught to ask this very important question. We would walk up to someone on the street and we would ask him this question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? That was what we were taught to say. Just rock up to any stranger randomly on the street and say, Hey, my name's Wayne. I was just wondering, if you died tonight and you stood before God and you had to give an answer to him about why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, what would your answer be? I'm not asking you to call it out. What would your answer be? What would you say? If you died tonight and stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you in to my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer God? You get different answers when you do this on the street with people. It's not necessarily a lunchroom conversation at the office. But you get things like, people say, well, things like this. Uh, be, well, you should, let me, you should let me in God because basically I'm a good person. Or someone might say, because I go to church, at least at Christmas and Easter. Or someone might say, because I got baptised. Or because I speak in tongues. Or because I haven't done anything terrible like murdering someone. I haven't done any of the, real, the, the top ten bad ones, God. And some of you know that all of those responses are wrong. But let me be clear, all of those responses are wrong. If we start our answer to God's question with the phrase, because I, we have instantly gone wrong. The only acceptable answer is because Christ. Because Christ made me right with God. This is 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because Christ made me right with you, God. He made me pure and holy and he freed me from my sin. Paul bookends his letter in the first Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. If you go to the 15th chapter and the 3rd and 4th verse, you see... It's because Christ died for my sins. This would be my answer. Because Christ died for my sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Just as the Bible said. That is the only answer. Because of Christ. You see, I don't start because I. I say because Christ. If I take my eyes off Christ crucified... We all will inevitably become, we trust in ourselves and our experience. That's the bottom line. That is our human propensity to trust in ourselves. To try to figure it out. That's what we do. If we take our eyes off Christ crucified, even though we can claim we'll be in Christ, we inevitably begin to trust in our own self, in our own righteousness, in our own experience, our, our own level of holiness. And we begin to think that we somehow contributed to our salvation and it somehow now depends on me. Because, and what happens if I take this and I begin this drift away from because of Christ, what we do is we end up in, a, in some very dark places. We end up in a very dark, deep hole of despair or we end up with pompous pride and arrogance. And we have lost the heart of God in both those places. The deep dark hole of despair, we have disconnected from the heart of God on the cross. We end up with pride and arrogance, we're disconnected from the heart of God in Christ on the cross. And so if that's where you're at this morning, I just want to encourage you, come back to Christ. Come back, put your focus, remember. This is one of the words that Paul uses. He says, remember. I want, to, I want you to do that this morning. 
It is only Christ crucified that can liberate all of us from despair and pride. Like I said, we all live with ourselves. We all live with our own thoughts. We all live with our, the things that we do that we, that we know that we shouldn't do. And we, we have to keep running back to the cross and saying, Father, forgive me. Father, cleanse me. Father, strengthen me. If we go back to verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul says, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds. <laughs> like I said, it was foolish in the first century. It always has been. <laughs> So one of the greatest things you can do is just get over it. It's going to be foolish. People are going to scoff at it because that's what they've been doing for 2,000 years, been scoffing at this. It's like, really? One of the things that we have in our culture today is your truth. Isn't it lovely? You have your truth, I have my truth. Oh, it's lovely. Your truth, that's just your truth, Wayne. No, sorry, it's not. Jesus either happened or he didn't happen. It's not just my opinion versus your opinion, my, tr- my so-called truth versus your truth. There is no thing as that. There's just truth. Again, this is the lie of language, of people perverting language to mean things that it cannot actually mean. The cross happened. Christ happened. Christ was either crucified or he wasn't. It's not open for interpretation. And history confirms that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And so we do not actually get to decide whether he was crucified or not in some kind of your truth, my truth debacle. And people go along, even in the church. People, there are people say that they believe the Bible, but you find out whether you really believe the Bible if you obey the Bible. All of us read the Bible and find parts we don't like. Or parts we find difficult to understand. It was Augustine who wrote in the 4th century from North Africa said, if we believe what we like in the Bible and reject what we don't like, it's not the Bible we believe but ourselves. I'm going to say that again. If we believe what we like in the Bible and reject what we don't like, it is not the Bible we believe, it's ourselves. We don't get to change the Bible. The Bible either changes us by the power of the Holy Spirit or we we try to change the Bible and it ends up crushing us. It's the rock of offence. So where does this leave us? It's the reality that Christ and him crucified has always been offensive and it always will be and God has set it up like that. Okay? So... If you talk about Christ crucified and people are offended, you say there's only one way to God and it's Christ crucified, people are offended, that's okay. Because that is the way, that is the only way. The message translation put, uh, translates 1 Corinthians 1.18 like this. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out. Millions of lives around the world have been transformed because they've come to Christ and Him crucified. Our friends in the underground church in Iran are giving their lives to tell people of Christ and Him crucified. North Korea, China, other places on the planet. And in the West, we're trying to work it out. We're trying to like make it nice for people, not as offensive. It's not. It's always going to be offensive and you're always going to have to die in delivering the message. In a sense. Not necessarily that you'll lose your life here in our culture. That may come in the future. But it's the, it's the you die because you dare to proclaim the hope the power of Christ and him crucified is the answer that people are looking for. People are looking for meaning. They're desperate for it. You have an answer. If you're in Christ, you've got an answer. You need to tell them. What you're looking for is Jesus. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, the man that was crucified and resurrected and is, will be returning to come as king 
and rule and to reign. That Jesus is who you're looking for and who you need. Who you need. And we come to, when we come to the cross of Christ and kneel and surrender, we are then transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we close this morning, I never want to assume that everybody has done that, that everybody in this room has surrendered to Christ. And I want to invite you, please take out your sheet of paper. There's a little prayer in there. We want to pray with that prayer on a handout. It's also going to be on the screen before we participate in the Feast of Jesus. But this is that moment to surrender to Christ, to say, God, I don't get it. It's offensive. It seems weak. It seems foolish. But that seems, that's how you set it up, God. And so, yes, I want to say yes to you this, today, God. And so I've crafted this prayer. And it's a combination of scriptures from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And so I want to invite you all to pray it with me. And some of you could be praying it for the very first time as an act of surrender to Jesus. And this will be the greatest day of your life, except when Jesus returns for you. So you pray with me. Jesus Christ, I believe you died for my sins, just as the scriptures said, that you were buried, then raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you. I surrender all my pride, despair, self-hatred and rejection to you. From this day forward, I will trust only in you to make me right with God. I will trust you to make me pure and holy, to free me from my sin, to enable me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love everyone else the way you love me. Jesus You are now my Lord and my King, and I give you my complete allegiance. Please seal me and fill me with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, let my life reveal that you are the power and wisdom of God. Amen.